This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, with President Obama back from his long trip to Asia, Japan, Malaysia, and the Philippines, we're talking about reinventing some of our venerable national institutions. Chances are that over the next few weeks, two things might happen to you. The first thing you might do is tune into the NBA playoffs. This weekend, the first round is coming to a close, and so many eyes have been on California, the series between the Golden State Warriors and the Los Angeles Clippers, but most of the action has been focused on the owner's suite at the league office in New York and on pregame protests and the media storms that resulted, ultimately in the lifetime ban of Clippers owner Donald Sterling. Later in the show, we'll talk to my friend Mike Pesca of Slate, one of the most thoughtful observers of sports and its intersection with popular culture. What did we as a nation and a fan base go through this week and what precedents were set? What's the legal and financial battle to come and are we better off as a result? The second thing you might do if you've been nursing a flu or sprained an ankle emulating some of those NBA stars is see a doctor. If you're like many, you've got insurance to cover the cost. You know how the system works. Pay a copay or a deductible, grab a prescription, and get on with your life. If you're one of the 8 million who've signed up for the Affordable Care Act by the end of March, it's a whole new world. That new world began to take shape in 2009 as the 44th president tried to do what his predecessors couldn't provide health insurance to all Americans. It's been a long and bumpy road to where we are now, but as the Supreme Court affirmed, it is now the law of the land. Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, Vice Provost for Global Initiatives and Chair of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania, was, from 2009 to 2011, a special advisor on health care reform to the White House, one of the architects of the sweeping legislation we collectively call Obamacare. And whether or not that's a good marketing moniker for the program remains to be seen. The author of 10 books, Dr. Emanuel, is now out with his latest, Reinventing American Healthcare, How the Affordable Care Act Will Improve Our Terribly Complex, Blatantly Unjust, Outrageously Expensive, Grossly Inefficient, and Error-Prone System. That's a mouthful, and we'll get more of it as Zeke Emanuel joins us from Philadelphia. Dr. Emanuel, welcome to Polyoptics. My pleasure to be here. Uh, before we get to the book, Zeke, and the, and the five years that have preceded it, I think it, we've all got a wake-up call this week in Oklahoma, the case, uh, the death penalty case involving uh, Clayton Lockett and the response by Governor Mary Fallon and the issues involved. And it, it, did this, uh, this can't have come out of left field for you, obviously a major issue about where the health care system stops when it comes to uh, the death penalty. Well, it's funny, actually, in one of my courses, uh, I teach a class on the ethics of uh, physician participation in capital punishment. And uh, as you may know, or as many of your uh, listeners may know, the AMA is solidly against uh, participation in capital punishment by physicians and think that it uh, violates uh, the physician's uh, role as a healer and as someone who cares for uh, people. Uh, These these aren't their patients. 
uh, and they're really brought in uh, simply to end their lives. Uh, the second point I would make, uh, and I think that position is, is uh, correct, whatever you think about the ethics of capital punishment, physician involvement, I think it, it is in conflict with the physician's role. Uh, the second point I would make is that um, no one should think uh, that there's any medical intervention and medical treatment that is flawless. Every uh, medical intervention, whether it's drawing blood or other things, uh, has some rate of complications. Uh, and uh, capital punishment has had more than its share of uh, complications uh, when done uh, via lethal injection, uh, getting the vein right, the, the mixture and cocktail correct, and we also know that in, in, in the Netherlands, which has the most experience with euthanasia, that there's a not insignificant rate of uh, complications, even among physicians who've practiced uh, a long time, and they even have a consulting uh, service because of, of that complication uh, rate. So we, we need to be aware that this is a lot harder than it looks, uh, even in the hands of people who have a lot of experience and where there's a willing participant. Um, so I, I think, that, you know, again, that, that having technical difficulties is in some ways no surprise um, in this situation, given what we know about uh, both uh, euthana voluntary euthanasia and capital punishment. They are not uh, uh, problem-free interventions. But harder than it looks is the sort of polyoptic issue here, because for so long, uh, Zeke, you know, these executions were carried out with the prescribed witnesses, but largely in a secret uh, setting. And yet so many of the details now are going to have to come forth as this is investigated in Oklahoma. Will the well, public well, understanding say, change this much? I would say it's not been that. I mean, there has been some secrecy around it, but the, the fact that there are many complications to this has been well known within the medical community. Uh, there is a anesthesiologist who, who uh, last I talked to him, was at Columbia uh, Physicians and Surgeons Medical School and uh, had documented a lot of the problems with uh, a lethal injection. So uh, I think many of the complications have been uh, known uh, in the past. If this one will obviously get much more documentation, uh, but it's not as if you know we haven't known that uh, these uh, events have not gone smoothly all the time. Now turning uh, Zeke to the prospect of reinventing American healthcare, was very excited when I got the book because of the uh, proscriptions it provides and the and the predictions that you make. But what I enjoyed most of all, I think. And what will be illuminating for most is this wonderful history of the American healthcare system that you bring us through sort of in the first third of the book that I wasn't expecting. Was that, uh, did that require a lot of new research on your part and examination into how our system has developed? Because you, you lay it out so thoughtfully and, and neatly as it goes from that first medical insurance on ships that needed to be provided to seamen. Some of it required new new research, but uh, I, you know, if you've been if you've been in the field for thirty years, you somehow acquire it by osmosis. Um, and uh, but you know that the seventeen ninety example you're talking about, where the first Congress requires ship owners to uh, provide uh, for the 
physician examination and treatment of six seamen uh, was brought to me by a Harvard Law School professor, not me, the world. He published uh, uh, literature uh, articles on uh, that case, pointing out that, in fact, here is a mandate by the first Congress, who certainly knew something about what the Constitution contained, since many of them wrote it, uh, showing that, you know, a mandate... They, they didn't think that there was any uh, constitutional issue with uh, having a mandate on, uh, um, in this case, employers. And then subsequently, as he points out, in 1798, recognizing a whole hospitalization, they have a mandate on the seamen themselves to buy hospital, to buy coverage for hospitalization and to make sure that they had the financial wherewithal to provide for those provisions. So, you know, it, it, what it, 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 I mean, this, there's a very long history, and, and I think among the most interesting pieces of that history, personally, is, uh, um, you know, many Republicans who supported health care reform. And as I point out in the book, you know, uh, as early as 1950, you've got a Republican proposal that goes like this. Um, you should ha- uh, people should be able to buy private insurance to cover health care. Uh, for those people who can't afford it, there should be government subsidies, and those government subsidies should be tied to people's income. So income-linked subsidies so people can buy from uh, competing insurance, private insurance plans. Sound a lot like Obamacare? You know, this is a Republican proposal, again, as early as uh, the 1950s. Uh, and it shows you that, uh, you know, there's been a lot of movement on the Republican Party side, but that, you know, essentially Obamacare is a bipartisan proposal that both Democrats and Republicans should be able to endorse. Um, then, yeah. That, so um, that kind of history, I, that I didn't know and that I did did discover, you know, when you do in-depth research. Right. From Earl Warren to Richard Nixon to Mitt Romney, uh, yeah. there has been a there has been a long history of Republican thought thoughtfulness about reinventing health care. Uh, you know, your dad was a pediatrician. My dad uh, is a pediatrician about to uh, retire after about 50 years. Um, and mm-hmm. so I grew up just like you uh, in a waiting room playing with the toys while the kids, while the uh, while dad was finishing up seeing his patients. But there was such a mystique around American healthcare. I want to begin, Zeke, by uh, rem- bringing us back to a newsreel about the, m- the modern marvels of medicine. On the beam is the new beam bed, named for its surgeon inventor, Dr. Marvel Beam of Los Angeles. By pressing a button, the head section and middle part two can be raised and lowered for comfort and convenience. Adjusting the foot of the built-in wonder is still another of the operations directed from the control panel, which enables the patient to lift a wash basin with hot and cold running water to within easy reach. The robot bed promises to be a great time saver for busy nurses. With fingertip control, the basin disappears beneath the bed, a mechanical marvel that does everything for the patient except pay the bill. Zeke, sounds like a breeding ground for infections. I love except pays for the bill. <laughs> except pays for, and little did they know that was going to be the biggest yes, problem. Exactly. That that there's the issue. Exactly. So. so so tell us. I mean, tell us about how how both hospitals, physicians, the blues, and and everything conspired to create by really 1993 uh, this face-off between Bill Clinton and people like Arlen Specter and this tangled mess of the American healthcare system. Well, I mean, that's a complicated story that's hard to tell in just a few minutes, but the fact is that uh, we had a very long history of uh, supporting hospitals. Uh, right after the war, uh, the Hill-Burton Act uh, provided federal funds to 
states to build hospitals, and it's estimated that a third of all hospital expansion for about 30 years was uh, funded through Hilburton monies given to community hospitals to expand. And when Medicare was introduced, the government uh, made sure that the rates were good, uh, very generous to hospitals so that uh, they would not have a reason not to take uh, Medicare patients. And uh, the consequence was a period of uh, where hospitals would get a, uh, had a big incentive to expand and to build more rooms and beds and add more equipment and tests and uh, because they not only were paid for them by the federal government, had a guaranteed payment, but they also got uh, uh, their capital expenditures uh, uh, reimbursed. Um, and we also wanted a lot of research. So the NIH supported uh, um, you know, academic health centers for doing research and de- uh, developing new treatments um, that led to uh, big expansion in academic uh, medical center. So there's been a, a uh, uh, I don't know, uh, con- confluence of uh, incentives for uh, the expansion of hospitals, and they have become a big business. You know, they now, uh, can, uh, about a, bi- a trillion dollars almost a year goes to hospitals, uh, about a third of the all healthcare spending, and they have become major employers. They've become major parts of communities. I mean, in New York City, the fourth and fifth largest private employers are two healthcare systems, Long Island Jewish and Mount Sinai. Uh, so, you know, they, these are major organizations in communities. So, Zeke, when September 23rd, 1993 rolled around, I was working in the uh, White House with your brother, uh, and we uh, the motorcade trooped up to Capitol Hill, bringing President Clinton right. uh, before a joint session of Congress. Hear a little bit about what he said then, uh, almost twenty more than twenty years ago, and then we'll we'll fast forward twenty years. We all know what's right. We're be- blessed with the best healthcare professionals on earth, the finest healthcare institutions, the best medical research, the most sophisticated technology. My mother is a nurse. I grew up around hospitals. Doctors and nurses were the first professional people I ever knew or learned to look up to. They are what is right with this healthcare system. But we also know that we can no longer afford to continue to ignore what is wrong. Millions of Americans are just a pink slip away from losing their health insurance and one serious illness away from losing all their savings. Millions more are locked into the jobs they have now just because they or someone in their family has once been sick and they have what is called a pre-existing condition. And on any given day, over 37 million Americans, most of them working people and their little children, have no health insurance at all. What's known as a pre-existing condition, Zeke Emanuel, why couldn't Bill Clinton and Rom get this done back in 93? Well, uh, failure is overdetermined um, in this case. Uh, you know, so one problem was there were uh, 22 bills introduced, uh, and that sort of divided the supporters. Second, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, I think, uh, Ira Magaziner structured uh, a lot of the 
uh, task force that Bill Clinton appointed to work in private, not building public support, not building um, uh, the kind of uh, agreement relationships with Congress. That pissed off a lot of key uh, leaders on the Hill, especially Senator Moynihan, who was chairman of the Finance Committee, which has jurisdiction over these kind of reforms, and he uh, stymied it. Simultaneously, Danny Rostenkowski, who was a big supporter of the reform, chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, got himself into ethics and ultimately legal trouble, uh, and so he couldn't fully support it. Uh, simultaneously, because the proposal uh, would uh, eliminate insurance companies, they fought it tooth and nail, seeing this as their death knell. Um, so there were many, many factors that conspired to uh, uh, undermine the, that reform effort. Um, and I think, you know, uh, just to mention a few others, it was delayed several times because of things like getting the tax uh, uh bill through that uh, was so critical to reviving the economy, uh, NAFTA through. So it, it came out in fits and starts and was, you know, delayed. And, and as I point out in the book, one of uh, Lyndon Johnson's uh, great rules uh, that I think President Obama adopted very clearly is speed is of the essence. You've got to yeah. move quickly because opposition has time to organize if you slow down. Now, obviously, uh, we didn't, uh, in the Obama administration, completely realize that, partially because we were carrying on negotiations with the Republicans for a very long right. time in the hope of getting a bipartisan bill. Um, and then, uh, uh, because of, uh, you know, differences, uh, even with, um, you know, under remembering all the rules from the failure of the Clinton proposal, uh, it, it was still difficult to get this through. And as I point out to, to many audiences, you know, we did not have one vote to spare. If there's something in the bill you don't like, just remember, you know, we couldn't have added anything else. Otherwise, the bill would not have been passed. And uh, there was not a single vote to spare. Um, but, you know, you get a, a bill that's pushing in the right direction, even if it's not a perfect bill. And as I've said, the Affordable Care Act is not a perfect bill, but it definitely is an improvement from where we were in uh, 2008, 2009. Uh, the worst thing we could have done is nothing. And I, I think that right. the fact that all the parties understood that um, on the Democratic side, that not doing nothing was the worst outcome, actually made this more possible than at any time in the past. You wrote uh, in 2008, The Perfect Storm of Overutilization, which in many ways are, captures a lot of the themes that are in this book and that were uh, in the effort in 2009. At, at what point, once President Obama was elected uh, and the president-elect was going through his transition, did uh, you and Peter and others uh, start to mobilize to say, we've got to get something done in 2009, just because like 1993, you know, this majority is going is to be too thin to sustain much longer? Oh, I think everyone, everyone knew that from uh, the first moment. I, don't, I, I think that that was like uh way ahead <laughs> i mean it was one of those things we all understood uh right away so i would uh, uh you know it wasn't there was no aha moment that was like just one of the assumptions we we, we got it that that was definitely you know you got to go fast but uh, you know and and i would say as i say in the book phil shalero head of legislative affairs every time someone brought something up he says hold that for the conference hold that for the conference just let's get through we got to get through you know don't raise objections to this and that and, and you know I chafed at that. Being a policy guy, there are lots of things that I thought we could do better. Um, in the end, 
uh, Phil was right. We had to get something through, but Phil also turned out, you know, he couldn't have predicted the fact that we couldn't have a conference in the end and, and we couldn't fix a lot of things that uh, everyone agrees would have been better uh, in the arrangements. So, uh, you know, we got a bill. That's the thankful thing. Um, but it was probably more imperfect than, than it even should have been because of, uh, of the Scott Brown victory. Yeah, so let's hear a little bit, uh, Zeke, of President Obama's September 9th, 2009, as he rolled out his vision for health care to Congress. Our collective failure to meet this challenge, year after year, decade after decade, has led us to the breaking point. Everyone understands the extraordinary hardships that are placed on the uninsured, who live every day just one accident or illness away from bankruptcy. These are not primarily people on welfare. These are middle-class Americans. Some can't get insurance on the job. Others are self-employed and can't afford it, since buying insurance on your own costs you three times as much as the coverage you get from your employer. Many other Americans who are willing and able to pay are still denied insurance due to previous illnesses or conditions that insurance companies decide are too risky or too expensive to cover. We are the only democracy, the only advanced democracy on Earth, the only wealthy nation that allows such hardship for millions of its people. Zeke, a year ago, May 6, 2013, you wrote in the Wall Street Journal, healthcare exchanges will need the young invincibles. And you said some very prescient things in that piece. Nobody is forecasting a glitch-free rollout. Uh, um, bugs in the computer software are bound to pop up and the quality of the user experience will undoubtedly need improvement. Such glitches will be ironed out within a few years. Zeke, that's about eight months before September and, and or October and the, the looming disaster. Did you see this coming? <laughs> I wrote that? Um, look. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think... Uh, First of all, um, as I have said, I do not think the uh, management structure for the exchanges was properly done. That, you know, I, not just I saw, but lots of people saw, even as early as uh, the spring and summer of 2010, when, uh, you know, immediately after the bill uh, was passed, we could see that, you know, we needed a different structure for implementation. I think it was a mistake that that was not uh, done. Um, second of all, I was. I think I was just being, you know, sort of reasonable, not being unreasonable, which is this is a massive undertaking. I knew and I had talked to people who had run exchanges before, whether the public exchange in Massachusetts or the private exchanges that had been set up in previous times. And I understood how difficult this thing was and how difficult, and uh, you know, big companies, uh, whether it's uh, Twitter or uh, uh, United Airlines, that have when they have big software initiatives, they don't get it right at the first time. You know, Google, they do beta testing, and they have to make constant improvements. Um, so I was, I mean, I don't think anything I said there was like brilliant insight. It's just that no one else was being that frank, and I, I have a tendency to be very just blunt about what I'm seeing. So I knew that was, that, that was probably inevitable. Um, and, I, you know, frankly, uh, it, it looks brilliant now just because uh, the obvious happened, but I don't think it was, I, I don't think that there was any great insight there. I would say one thing, it's quite clear from the Jeff Zients experience, where you send in a good manager yep. who gets a good team uh, and is focused, that 
you know, this really is fundamentally a management issue. You obviously need technical capacity. You need dedicated people. You need lots of talents. But you also, you know, let, let's not kid ourselves. You need a very good manager who understands what needs to be done um, and can mobilize uh, the right resources and prioritize in the right way. And one of my fears is, you know, there hasn't been a permanent structure put into place that really uh, addresses the management issue. And it's not like, well, it's working okay, so we can just put it aside. You know, the people who run Zappos or Amazon or REI or any other, you know, commercial uh, e-commerce website, they don't put it up and sort of go home. They're constantly, every day, waking up, how can we fix this, make it better, 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 better? How can we make sure that the products are optimal, that the search engines are better, that decision supports we can develop so people can make comparisons work even more smoothly. We need that kind of work on this. It's, a, it's fundamentally, that the health exchange are fundamentally e-commerce sites, um, and we need to have a big, big push uh, on them. Yeah, and I want to get into that in one bit because uh, my old friend Sylvia Matthews is now uh, uh, set yep. for confirmation of the Secretary of Health and Human Services, and yet uh, you know Kathleen Sebelius and her team—you uh, can't fault, uh, I think, the the work and the hours that they put in, but the results uh, at the beginning and. We, we have to remember what Amazon probably looked like day one when they first tried to sell their first book. It was not what Amazon is today. But I want to hear, just for uh, uh, some listeners' amusement, just a little bit of a Saturday Night Live parody of Secretary Sebelius trying to explain the functioning of the website. Hi, I'm Kathleen Sebelius, Secretary of Health under President Obama. Now, a lot of folks have been talking about our new healthcare enrollment website, how it's been crashing and freezing and shutting down and stalling and not working and breaking and sucking. <laughs> well, tonight, I have a number of friendly tips to help you deal with those technical problems. For example, have you tried restarting your computer? <laughs> Sometimes it helps to turn the computer off and then turn it back on. We don't know why, it just does. <laughs> If our website still isn't loading properly, we're probably just overloaded with traffic. Millions of Americans are visiting healthcare.gov, which is great news. Unfortunately, the site was only designed to handle six users at a time. <laughs> Zeke, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's funny. If it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. But, yeah. you know, on the other hand... In my in my real life, I live. I sort of have a glimpse into what the private exchange websites look like, and they aren't any great shakes either at this point. But sketch a vision for the future about when people like Jeff Zients and people with real, both consumer marketing awareness and technical savvy, have an opportunity to make the experience of acquiring healthcare a much better experience for people. Well, I think, look, I think we're going to have a, a website where you can go on, you can see your options, you can make uh, an estimate. Uh, you'll, you'll, first of all, you'll immediately see what your price is, not the sticker price, but the price with a, you know, your probable subsidy. Um, and uh, not only your subsidy for the premium, but also your subsidy for out-of-pocket expenses if you happen to be people who are, you know, at 200% of poverty or less. 
um, who are, you know get additional subsidies to cover the deductibles and the copays. Uh, I think that's vital. I also think you know you need an estimator, a decision support tool that helps you understand. All right, given my condition, how much I use the doctor, I'm likely to use the doctor, how many drugs I take, what's the best plan for me to minimize my expenses, which seems to be people's primary concern. Um, and I think those kind of uh, assistance is going to be vital because the lowest premium may not be the lowest overall cost for a person uh, across the year. And uh, I think those kinds of things are going to be important. But remember, there's also a back end. How does it interface with the insurance companies to make sure we don't drop the ball? That, I think, has received much less attention than uh, we would want. There's also a matter of what are the uh, insurance options on the exchange? How good are they? Are they really reflecting the best that we can do at any one time? Part of the job of a CEO for the exchanges is actually to make sure your products are what the customer wants or to go back to your suppliers, i.e. the insurance companies, the providers, the integrated delivery systems, the, the uh, managed care organizations, and get uh, uh, even better uh, offering. So I think uh, there's a lot to be done there, uh, and you know it could be much more seamless. And remember, the exchange is only one part of your experience. There's also going to be electronic health records and electronic communication with your doctors and your health team uh, going forward. And that also has to be something that you like to use, that gives you information, that uh, works seamlessly uh, so that you can get care at the most convenient place, whether that's the doctor's office or a pharmacy where you're getting a strep throat or an immunization or at a uh, remote lab or uh, imaging center so you don't always have to go into the doctor's office to get everything done. As the White House is making its final push, Zeke, toward what they hoped would be maybe six or seven million signups toward the end of March, uh, full court offensive on the part of everyone in the administration, even Dan Pfeiffer uh, came on my show and we talked about it for about an hour. Uh, President Obama did things like between two ferns. And then everyone got obsessed with the number, the signups and whether the, enough people would enroll. And yet I think one of the laments you have is that people aren't aware enough about the other things in the Affordable Care Act that are really going to uh, reinvent American health care 20 years hence. Yeah, you know, it is funny. You often hear the line, oh, that bill's 90% about access. Well, it's not 90% about access. First of all, if you count up all the pages, there are 906 pages, and only about uh, 222 are related to uh, expanding Medicaid and the exchanges. So that leaves three-quarters of the bill that's something else, and that's something else are things like cost control, improving quality, workforce issues, prevention issues. Um, it covers a lot of ground. And again, as I say, it's not perfect, and I probably can be more critical than anyone else in the country, knowing what's in the bill and knowing what we could have gotten, you know, what I wish were in the bill. Um, I want more cost control in the bill. I want more prevention in the bill. I think we could have done a better job on workforce issues. Again, nonetheless, this is a, an important positive step forward uh, that we can build on. And I think uh, if anything, uh, you know, people don't realize, you know, that menu labeling, while the regulations haven't come out, but that's in the bill to enhance prevention. We've got cost control uh, measures in the bill, including a whole innovation center at Medicare to try out new ways of delivering care that'll improve quality and reduce costs. We've had a big push funded by, by the bill called the Partnership for Patients that's reduced hospital infections, reduced early elective uh, C-sections, and other 
problems, uh, quality problems in the hospital. Those are all part of the bill, and yet most people don't know. And the, again, I think um, one of the tragedies is the administration has not done a great communications job around them uh, and, and publicizing uh, those achievements. And I think you know that people need to know, even if you don't get insurance through the exchange, you're benefiting from the bill, both from reduced costs, but also from these hospital. Uh, improvements. Um, so I'm hoping going forward people realize that uh, even if you're insured in the good old way through the, your employer, you are seeing benefits uh, of the Affordable Care Act for yourself. And it's true, and I think we have to face the reality, Zeke, that it could be 10 or 20 years before people look fondly back at uh, the work of President Obama, people like Zeke Emanuel, and the efforts to get the Affordable Care Act through. Because well, let's hope it won't be 20 years. I think, as I say in my book, I think it's by the end of the decade that it's going to become quite clear this was a major achievement, and we're going to begin scratching our heads. How did they get it through when it took 100 years and no one else got it through? And then, you know, I think people will appreciate it, just as... In, in, in the late 40s, they didn't appreciate Harry Truman, and they, there was a lot of, no one thought he would win re-election in 1948. Uh, and now he's a near-great president, just behind Washington, Lincoln, and Roosevelt. Um, I think this is going to look, uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act is going to look like a bigger and bigger and bigger achievement as time passes. The new book from Public Affairs is Reinventing American Healthcare, How the Affordable Care Act Will Improve Our Terribly Complex, Blatantly Unjust, outrageously expensive, grossly inefficient, and error-prone system. The author, Dr. Ezekiel Manuel. Zeke, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure to be here. After the break, my friend Mike Pesca of Slate, talking all about the affair of Donald Sterling. Sirius XM's POTUS. Politics of the United States for the people of the United States. I'm Julie Mason. Hi, I'm Michael Smirconish. I'm Tim Farm. And every day we track all the news and events from Washington, D.C. and around the world. I love politics. We have discussions. And the best analysts in Washington. Just talking about politics, the serious and the absurd. And on POTUS, we'll give you news and analysis from inside Washington, D.C. With people who cover this story every day. That's the politics of the United States. Sirius XM's POTUS 124. Or listen on the Sirius XM app. Back now on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. This is Polyoptics, and I'm Josh King, and we're joined by my friend Mike Pesca of Slate. Uh, Mike and I have known each other for quite a while and uh, always talk sports and issues, but popular culture as well. Mike, uh, on this Kentucky Derby weekend, California Chrome, do you think uh, there's a shot there for the first California horse to win in about 50 years? I think so, but uh, up until recently, the favorite in the Derby almost never wins because it's a cavalry charge. I always think the Derby's a pretty good event to bet on because, you know, I like to take the 10 to 20 to 1 shots, and why not? I spend $2, and I feel like an expert for a weekend. Well, uh, it could be a redeeming weekend in California should that horse win, but it's been a rough week in uh, in Los Angeles for the Clippers. Uh, I have to start, Mike, by playing a little bit of that TMZ audio that those of us who were watching Twitter overnight on Friday and into Saturday morning first got themselves exposed to. If we ever have any issues, it's because people call you and tell you things about me that are not true. Why are you broadcasting? I'm not broadcasting anything. pictures with minorities. Why? What's wrong with minorities? What's wrong with black people? Nothing. nothing, nothing. What's wrong with these families? It's talking to an enemy. There's nothing wrong with minorities. They're fabulous. Fabulous. Because you're an enemy to me. Why? Because you don't understand. I don't understand what. Nothing. Nothing. That racism, 
steal is a lie? No, but there's a culture. What culture? People steal certain things. Hispanics steal certain things towards blacks. Blacks steal certain things towards other groups. It, it's been that way historically, and it will always be that way. But it's not that way in my heart and in my mind. Mike Pesca, minorities are fabulous. Uh, how did you first hear this uh, this tape, and what was your initial reaction? Uh, how did I first hear it? It was everywhere. You know, it's hard. <laughs> it's it's like when you uh, step out in the rain, and it was a deluge, like it was a couple days in New York City. What was the first raindrop to hit you? I mean, it's it was everywhere, and it smacked me in the face. And my reaction was honestly, well, Donald Sterling. We all knew this about Donald Sterling. It surprises me 0% that Donald Sterling would have these opinions. Now, when you dig a little deeper into how the tape was released, uh, I think that that's a little surprising and underexplored or what the circumstance, we still don't know the circumstances of how his mistress recorded him or even if that was legal. But, and this is, I think, undergirding the whole story here, you know, Donald Sterling, to anyone who's been paying attention, is more than the... uh, probably the worst owner in professional sports, just seems to be a horrible person with a lot of history, a documented history of racism. So I did think, well, maybe this will be the thing that gets the NBA to take notice because they've been sort of blind to it up to this point, And that's exactly what happened. You wrote that uh, Sterling was long a thorn in the side of the NBA, which is to do a disservice to thorns. Uh, you know, you, we see new owners coming into the league, uh, people who are uh, both pillars in their communities, saving teams for communities. Uh, give us a little more understanding of you know the, the, the businessman that is Donald Sterling and how he got this team on the cheap back in 1981, yeah. was it? Yeah, his pal Jerry Buss said, hey, why not own a team? The San Diego Clippers are available. And Sterling, uh, Buss, longtime owner of the Lakers, possibly, I mean, he died recently, was, you know, a pillar of the league, one of the most beloved owners in the league. Sterling, decidedly not. So Sterling bought the team for about $12 million, and this was an era where it was thought that owning a basketball or professional sports franchise was just a vanity play, a nice way to lose money, and the people who owned it were, you know, especially by today's standards, small time. But Sterling's empire grew, and just holding on to the Clippers made his net worth more. He was a real estate magnet, and one of the very fundamental tenets of how he ran his business was just to use discrimination. So when he built a big complex in Koreatown, he wanted Korean tenants. He specifically dissuaded Hispanic and black tenants and large families from moving in. And, uh, you know, it was revealed and he f- paid millions of dollars of fines because he said that black people smell and black people attract vermin and he didn't have very nice things to say about Hispanic people. And his wife is also on the record, Rochelle Sterling, who is uh, who is estranged from him now and some seen, uh, seen by some as a person who could come in and maybe take ownership of the team and wash away the sins of Donald. I don't think that's true. She's on the record as, you know, opposing Hispanic people being in the lobby, and she can't remodel these apartments because of the kind of people who live in the apartments. Well, anyway, the big thing he did with the basketball team, that's his real estate empire, is nothing. He had a pretty smart strategy. He realized he didn't have to spend anything other than what was required of him by the collective bargaining agreement, a salary flaw, and the worth of his team would go, go up. And that's exactly what happened. And he never went after good free agents, and he played in the worst arenas but lately he has sort of been sucked into modernity he is a tenant in the staple center jerry buss the lakers owner convinced him of that he's been the beneficiary of league to see he had a good draft pick in blake griffin and also uh chris paul plays for the team 
beneficiary of a decision by Commissioner David Stern. Paul was supposed to go to another team, and Stern interceded, and now Paul's on the Clippers. So actually, he's a really good team. And, and he's got a great to, coach, our old Boston Celtics skipper, Doc Rivers. Doc Rivers paid, and, and he did pay Doc, you know, $7 million. So in the last couple of years, now that the team is looking good, and I think maybe now that he sees that there's a way to make money on it other than not to spend money, uh, he has been spending money. I don't know if that makes him a good owner. He still does, as recently as a couple of years ago, would attend his own games and viciously heckle his own players like Baron Davis, and is just not a nice person by all accounts, and was sued by NBA legend uh, Elgin Baylor for, among other things, racism. Should be noted, Baylor didn't win that suit, but, you know, never had a good reputation. But that's that's who Donald Sterling is, and that's who he was, known to anyone who bothered to pay attention with the release of these tapes. You know, you can't not pay attention. Well, I had not been paying attention until last Saturday, and then uh, reaction was swift by Sunday. Uh, reaction both from sort of the public folks like me and certainly media storm that erupted, and also uh, on the where some of the the major drivers of the league's value now, people like LeBron James, were were quick to make pointed comments about uh, whether or not Sterling had a place in this league. Let's hear a little bit from LeBron after one of the, the playoff games. I mean, uh, obviously, if it's true, it's very sensitive. And, uh, you know, I had I have my statement before the game, and I'm going to stick by it. Um, there's no room for that in our game. We've uh, found a way to, to make this the greatest game uh, in the world, and, and for comments like that, it, it taints our game, and we can't have that. Can't have it from a player. We can't have it from an owner. We can't have it from a fan, and so on and so on. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, Hispanic, or whatever the case may be. Uh, we can't have that a part of our game. Mike Pesca of Slate, give us a sense of how pressure quickly builds on a young, or not a young, but a new NBA commissioner like Adam Silver. Yeah, so the moment this came out, everyone was up in arms. LeBron, the most prominent player in the NBA, among the most outspoken, certainly to his credit. It. The Clippers were playing an away game right after the tapes broke. Um, what were they going to do? They say it staged a symbolic protest where they turned their jerseys inside out. And the polyoptics moment of, of turning your jersey inside out got Paul Lucas up in arms. <laughs> I know. Paul Lucas, who runs UniWatch, he's like, I can't watch the unis anymore. And, and then some other teams also wore black socks. I called these laundry-related protests, and I thought that they were <laughs> inadequate. Uh, it does come out. They're in a tough position, and they have to try to win the game. But at that moment, it would have been really bold, but also really gutsy, and perhaps not in their self-interest. But I was thinking, had the Clippers, you know, refused to actually move during the jump ball or take the court, or maybe both teams would take the court, that would perhaps force someone's hand. Well, it turns out that the Warriors have been planning a really severe protest where they just weren't going to play, and they thought that the Clippers would Forfeit join the them game. too. Those were, right, or, you know, or... Or something. And if the other team doesn't accept your forfeit, it wouldn't be a forfeit. It would throw it into chaos. I think a good kind of chaos, you know, with with this. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But Silver knew that all this was brewing and knew if he didn't do something, especially before the Clippers played their next home game in L.A., he was going to have a big problem on his hands. He was going to have the sort of problem that he didn't want, which was an economic problem. If you have teams forfeiting, if you have sponsors pulling out as they were, he's charged with making the league as financially healthy as he can. 
And so he also had this huge, I, I said that Donald Sterling was a thorn in his side, except that's an insult to thorns because thorns are sharp and thorns are often attached to living things. And Donald Sterling seems a desiccated relic. But, you know, he always wanted Sterling out of the league. His predecessor, David Stern, wanted Sterling out of the league. Sterling is the very definition of a pariah. You have sponsors pulling out. You have your own team up in arms. And although experts were saying he didn't have his, it within his power to force Sterling to sell, Silver found it within his power. That's exactly what he did. And uh, he, I, I would say that in terms of public reaction, that is the, this, he's been enjoying the greatest few days that a commissioner of any sport has ever enjoyed. I mean, no matter what a commissioner does, even if you call it a popular opinion, you know, there's usually some dissent, except for me and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Jason Whitlock, a couple others who really question the decision. I mean, even the owners like Mark Cuban, who beforehand were pointing out that you're allowed to be a moron in the United States and it sets a bad precedent to strip someone's property of them just for moronic thoughts. I mean, once he made the announcement, Cuban was in line. Every other owner that I've seen is in line. It seems to be some, you know, it's been greeted as this great, profound bit of justice that uh, no one thought Adam Silver had in him. Well, let's hear a little bit of, of the Cuban before Adam Silver, and then we'll talk about the way the owners have lined up afterward. In this country, people are allowed to be morons. They're allowed to be stupid. They're allowed to think idiotic thoughts. And, you know, within an organization like the NBA, um, we try to do what's in the best interest of the league. And that's why we have a commissioner and a constitution. And I think Adam will, will, you know, be smart and, you know, deal with Donald to the full extent available to him. But again, in terms of just saying a blanket, let's kick him out. I don't want to go that far because that it's not about Donald. It's not about his position. It's about who's next. Mike Pesca, Mark Cuban's always a very independent, uh, 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 direct speaking kind of guy. Uh, and it, and as you wrote in Slate earlier this week, seemed to make some sense that even, you know, as moronic as you might be, you do have the right to your own opinions as as crappy as those might be. You finished your piece, Mike, with this. This was a rare instance, though, where the anti-moron message could have been an authentic populist one. Donald Sterling shouldn't own the Clippers, but Cuban is right. The NBA shouldn't divest the moron of his team. You get a lot of backlash from that? <laughs> definitely. I definitely got a lot of backlash. And the only one that troubled me, I mean, people calling me racist doesn't really matter. I have people of all races both agree and disagree. People call you racist for anything these days, it would seem. I did have a couple of writers who I respected questioning my motives. And I found, in fact, I learned this lesson from Joe Biden in a debate. I don't know if you remember this. This is a total sidetrack. But one time, uh, I think it was his one debate with uh, with uh, Sarah Palin. They said, what political message, what political lesson did you learn? And that's usually just an opportunity for some uh, platitudes. But he told the story of when he was first opposing Jesse Helms. And he questioned Helms' motivation. And everything blew up. And he said, I learned never to question my opponent's motivation. I thought that was a good lesson. Anyway, someone, another writer, questioned my motiv- motivations and said I was essentially just being a contrarian. I kind of agree. I stand by everything I say. I think we need to think about some bigger issues. I think what Cuban was saying there is right. I don't know if slippery slope is a little bit of an illogical argument. I mean, if you look it up in a logic textbook, it is under the heading um, illogical or fallacies of 
argument. But there is such a thing as precedent. And I do think it's a little troubling that this guy expressed odious thoughts and he must go. Then again, I am not saying it is not within the NBA's rights. The NBA's charter was secret, so I don't exactly know what was in it, although lately it's been uh, more publicized. Uh, but from what I understand, it's a consortium, it's a cartel, it's like a co-op or a bunch of franchisees. And if one owner of McDonald's is doing some odious stuff and devaluing the franchise, the other franchisees could say, you're out of here. A co-op board could say, you're out of here by, you know, painting your door a ridiculous color. And that's sort of, it seems to be within their rights to say, Donald Sterling, you're hurting the league, sponsors are going. You know, if you continue, fans might not come to when I book the Clippers into my arena. Right. It does seem within their rights. I'm just thinking in matter of principle, uh, I do think it's uh, something that we should pause a lot more than we paused during the time when everyone was high-fiving each other because uh, Donald Sterling would be forced to sell the Clippers. And yet there are going to be books written about these few days in which Adam Silver must have huddled with people like Doug Sosnick and other uh, other uh, uh, legal and public relations advisors in the NBA League offices looked at pictures uh, from the Staples Center of black tarp being put over sponsors' names and seeing the contracts being uh, uh, eradicated at that point for the very ideas that you talk about, Mike, that if, when the Clippers go to visit uh, neighboring arenas, you would have boycotts of those games. And yeah. so um, very tough spot. And I'm sure we're going to the absolute minute by minute TikTok of Adam Silver's life leading up to that Wednesday news conference is fascinating. I want to hear just a little bit of that conference and talk about him as a commissioner against uh, his predecessor. Effective immediately, I am banning Mr. Sterling for life from any association with the Clippers organization or the NBA. Mr. Sterling may not attend any NBA games or practices. He may not be present at any Clippers facility, and he may not participate in any business or player personnel decisions involving the team. So, Mike, he cut a fascinating figure against those uh, step-and-repeat pattern of the NBA logo, thin, svelte, bald, direct, uh, not very colorful, but sort of very seeming very honest and from the heart in the things that he said and the way that he answered the questions. Very different image from this, and David Stern did not uh, was, did not begin his char- his commissionership as a as an old man, but but this was a guy who seemed to be very much on top of breaking news and and trying to cauterize a wound as quickly as possible. And I think maybe in retrospect, it seems that David Stern was a, an accommodationist. He certainly was with Sterling. I also like, and this is an optics as much as it is audio. So you look at how things look. I listen to how things here. Um, banned for life. Is that actually different from suspended indefinitely? Yeah, exactly. The rules allow suspended indefinitely. Banned for life is definitely much harder. So that And how much more phrase. life might there be for a guy with prostate cancer at age 80 as well? I know. And that, I think, you know, if, if it doesn't turn out that he is forced to sell, I mean, if he dies while owning the team or if he drags this out for so long, I wonder how much of a victory... Silver's decision will be seen as I suspect it will still be seen as a good victory and it will be seen that or a good decision and it will be seen that circumstances that he couldn't control like Sterling's health came into play or circumstances that weren't fair like how litigious Sterling was came into play but um 
yeah, right now, you know, his popularity, <laughs> Silver's, is through the roof. And it's being, you know, written about on business websites as the absolute best way, decisive way to deal with a crisis. They should teach this in business schools for years to come. I would just say, okay, this was a crisis. But unlike a lot of other businesses where you're doing something really tough and maybe you know, taking a big loss by the decision you make. We look at, you know, car companies where they have a flaw in whatever it is, the tires or their ignition or BP and there's an accident. You know, if you make the wrong steps, you could be liable for millions, billions of dollars. What was the financial cost of Silver's decision? It would seem that by making this decision, you know, if anything, because Sterling's been such a bad owner, that it would be to most be, most owners, most of Silver's constituency's financial benefit. Absolutely. You know, you um, you watched Adam Silver on the stage uh, at, with the NBA logo step and repeat behind him, and those of a certain age will think back perhaps to the last time we remember a major sport commissioner banning someone for life. That was the, the very brief tenure of Bart Giamatti and the action he took against Pete Rose. Let's hear that. The banishment for life of Pete Rose from baseball is the sad end of a sorry episode. One of the game's greatest players has engaged in a variety of acts which have stained the game. And he must now live with the consequences of those acts. Had Bart Giamatti lived much longer after that ban, who knows how the Giamatti-Rose story would have ended. But, uh, you know, when we take uh, our people that either we lionize or or are reviled by and say they can no longer be part of this game, the commissioners ha- uh, set an imprint forever on their on their tenure. I mean, that's become, you know, who's Kennesaw Mountain Landis? He's the guy who first commissioner of baseball, but the big thing was the first thing he did, you know, throwing out throwing out the members of the Black Sox who cheated. And I do think those bold actions, like you say, they live with you forever interesting parallel between those two the language in the nba which allows banning for life some of it's about not having the uh, financial resources to pay your team and so forth there's language in there but most of it the majority of it is about gambling i mean gambling and, and the perception that one sport is not on the up and up that is shot through the charters of all these organizations that's why landis banned the black Sox. That's why Rose was banned. And most of the language in the NBA charter about who could be banned for life is about gambling, is about uh, the perception or the reality of throwing games. And uh, there is a small clause that says sort of or anything else. And it was the or anything else part that Silver latched on to. And then there are also these these geographic issues and also uh, uh, rules following issues. We, some of us will remember Bowie Kuhn and his battles against Charlie Finley and Pete Rozelle and Al Davis. Classic uh, confrontations between the commissioner and uh, and his owners. Yet there was one issue last year in the NFL which raises uh, sort of questions about uh, comparing a guy like Adam Silver to a guy like Roger Goodell. Let's hear uh, NFL Commissioner Goodell talking about Richie Incognito and the Miami Dolphins. I've had numerous meetings with the Dolphins. Uh, we've met with outside professionals. We have met with other organizations that have dealt with similar issues. And we're trying to get as much input as possible. Uh, this is a culture change and something that, uh, while modifying policies from time to time are important, this is more about people understanding the importance of a professional workplace where there's respect for everybody, whether that's a teammate, an opponent, game officials, and we have to provide that. 
And so we will modify our policies, but more importantly, we want to engage with our players, with our coaches, which we're doing here this week, to make sure we're making the right decisions long term. Mike Pesca, Roger Goodell not quite drawing that harsh red line that Adam Silver did. Although what Goodell, what Goodell, what the NFL did, uh, what the Dolphins did is conduct such a thorough investigation that my colleague here at Slate, Emily Bazelon, who's an expert on bullying, called it the best document of uh, any instance of bullying she's ever seen. You know, she thought the investigation was thorough and complete and excellent. That's what I would have liked to see in the Sterling case. Although you're not investigating an outside entity or a sub-entity in the case of the NFL looking at to the Dolphins or the Dolphins, you know, looking into their own uh, uh, locker room. You're investigating the behavior of your predecessor and the other owners if you look at the question of why Donald Sterling was allowed to be in the league as long as he was. I would have loved to have seen that as part of the investigation. And it gets back to my thesis on what uh, Silver did. I think it was the smart move for him, given his constituency and given his constraints. But it's being called brave. And to me, bravery is not something that gets 99% approval. I mean, just because people like it or don't like it doesn't mean it's necessarily brave. But a braver thing would have been to do the kind of investigation I'm talking about. You know, a braver thing would have been maybe to make a fuss about Sterling back in 2003 or 2006 or when these housing things were brought to light and you know it would have been the league itself bringing it to the fore as opposed to other journalists writing about it and the league kind of hushing it up hushing it up by the way I should add to the point where Doc Rivers who's a plugged in guy and a knowledgeable guy and a guy who understands society and has been really a beacon through this whole thing Doc Rivers said he didn't even know about Sterling's past in terms of racism when he took the Clippers job and that just shows me how much the league kind of has quieted that part of it up. It- and I, I listened to Doc's news conference, and I followed Doc very closely as a as a avid Celtics fan, and I consider him one of the smartest guys in sports, and and so thoughtful, Mike, about what his next step in life would be, whether he would take some time off and be with his kids as they began as they went through their college careers and into the pros, and he just earned such a wonderful uh, platform, having brought the Celtics back to glory, and he takes this job with the shittiest league in the team, the shittiest team in the league, with a guy who, with an owner who's who has all this, these problems, and a guy who knows his his boss as well as Doc seemed to do in Boston really makes me yeah. scratch my head. Well, Boston wasn't going to make the playoffs, and here the Clippers are poised to make the second round, so that counts. Yeah. You know, your point guard is Chris Paul, who's a dream, versus your point guard is Rajon Rondo, who's kind of a nightmare. I mean, I love Rajon Rondo, and he has all the talent in the world, but I think a coach like Doc Rivers, okay, let's get real sports talky, guy who distributed the ball his whole life, guy who defined the point guard position as, you know, distributing the ball, Rajon Rondo, Maybe not always like that. Uh, let's let's get back from the sports talk to <laughs> to to the sort of the intersection of uh, of this issue and politics. And halfway around the world, President Obama is trying to conduct uh, uh, geopolitics in his trip to Japan, uh, Philippines, and Malaysia, uh, places that U.S. presidents have not been in many years. Uh, certainly, many other points on the agenda does what he needs to do, which is hold a joint news conference with his Malaysian counterpart on, I think, Saturday or Sunday. And, of course, first question from the U.S. reporters on hand, what do you think about the Donald Sterling affair? And let's hear what President Obama said. The owner is reported to have said uh, some uh, incredibly offensive uh, 
racist uh, statements that were published. Um, I don't think I have to I'll interpret uh, those statements for you. They, they kind of speak for themselves. Um, you know, when people, uh, when, when ignorant folks want to advertise their ignorance, you don't really have to do anything, you just let them talk, and, and that's, that's what happened here. Um, you know, I have confidence that the NBA commissioner, Adam Silver, a good man, uh, will address this. Mike Pesca, I watched the video of President Obama answering this question, and he's struggling, I think, to to rein himself in from saying something like the Cambridge police acted stupidly, uh, but very tough spot for politicians uh, to be to be asked these questions, uh, especially when they're overseas uh, and before Silver has acted. Because you know Obama did not want to have a beer with Donald Sterling. That is definitely no beer summit with Donald Sterling. <laughs> I think it was measured and appropriate, and it was pretty nice that he defined the terms for his probably bewildered Malaysian audience. And I agree with that. You know, when someone just wants to be racist, uh, let them, right? It sort of defines and tells you everything you need to know about that person. Uh, I've been studying the photos of Donald Sterling and uh, trying to figure out if there's anyone that would define him as a finger tenter. (laughs) Finger tenting is, uh, this is one of my passions. Uh, Mr. Burns does it. It's also known as steepling. In the world of psychology, steepling is meant just to show that the person is in control and knowledgeable, yet it has become, in the world of uh, popular entertainment, a symbol for evil. Uh, Dr. Evil, I believe, finger-tented. A couple of James Bond villains finger-tented. In the new Muppets movie, the evil doppelganger of Kermit the Frog finger-tents. Not exactly sure why, but uh, it has. it is a documented phenomenon. It is the mustache twirling of our day. As I finger-tent tent my way toward the end of this Polyoptics episode, uh, Mike Pesca, I am reminded, as you pointed out in your piece on finger-tenting, which I will... Uh, linked to uh, on Polyoptics of the great uh, Michael Lonsdale as Hugo Drax in Moonraker and the the finger tenting that he aimed toward Roger Moore in uh, in that pivotal scene in Moonraker. Of all the Bond villains, his plan was really the least logical when you get down to it. I mean, a lot of these guys wanted to take over the world. I'm going to point a missile at the Earth and hold you hostage. That's a one, two, three plan. Moonraker was blasting things in outer space and was, and, you know, and, having his own civilization and jumpsuits, and it, it just really made no sense. And he hijacked the space shuttle. I mean, that's kind of far-fetched. <laughs> <laughs> and and what yeah. they, they launched them out of the out of the mountains in Brazil is that what they were trying to do? They were all over the place. Yeah, this was not a guy. You almost wonder how he had, how he acquired his fortune. Maybe by owning an NBA franchise and not pouring any money into it. Did you go Drax? Mike Pesca of Slate, formerly on, uh, of NPR. That's where you got to know him. But you'll get to know him much better as his daily podcast, The Gist premieres on Slate Monday. Mike, what's the plan for it? Well, it's going to be about 20 minutes, going to be uh, two or three interviews a day, a news one, a culture one, and then I'll end with my spiel, me popping off or taking stock of the world. Find the gist at Slate.com. Mike Pesca, thanks so much for joining us on Polyoptics. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. Hear us here each Saturday on SiriusXM Channel 124 POTUS, 
politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual. Think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.